I'm Aaron Nathans. I'm Michael G. Ronstadt. And you're listening to the Nathans and Roncast. One day we'll get that. We will. We need a click track for the introduction. The Nathans and Roncast. There we go. Okay. <laughs> We're still here in Boston. Um, uh, but we, we've moved on in podcast land. To uh, you know, Boston is my favorite baseball city because it's home to, to my beloved Red Sox. Um, but there, there was another team that, which exists only in my imagination because they packed up and, and left uh, Brooklyn in uh, 1957. I think and I think they they uh, moved out to L.A. Uh, starting with the 1958 season. I know you're a big baseball fan, Michael. I started falling asleep. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, hey, come on, we're recording here. No, no, actually, I, I try to keep up, but uh, family gatherings had instruments. We didn't throw around any footballs or baseballs at, at family gatherings, and uh, I missed I missed it. Uh, so yes. Keep going. Well, so. you know, uh, uh, truth be told, n- n- neither did we. Um, uh, my baseball fandom came to me. Uh, it was a bit out of character. But I think the, the whole family has a love of Boston anyway. And the Red Sox are uh, deeply rooted in Boston. I, I, I lived in Boston as a kid for about two years. Um, and it's nice to be back here uh, visiting my, my, my sister Jenny, who is off to the side here. Uh, being uh, respectfully quiet, um, I'm sure at some point she'll she'll well, she's taking a bow, a curtsy. Um, in any event, two of them. <laughs> I just love to write baseball songs, and you've been so patient with me, Michael. You, you've this is the second baseball song that we've recorded. The first one, of course, was the strength to not fight back, which also is about the Brooklyn Dodgers. I know, yeah. Um, you know, it's. I've learned a lot just about the history of baseball because of you. And uh, this song, despite the topic being maybe something that's not my forte, uh, nor expertise, nor uh, main interest in life, Mm -hmm. uh, like any good sports movie, it can relate to someone who is not necessarily interested in that topic right so um and i put sports under a topic just because i'm a musician and i'm being stereotypical Mm. uh, i only know that but basically this tune um flatbush sunset flatbush sunset yes indeed Uh, it has aaron you have a debut on this one that's right uh, are you playing piano yes piano this is the first track of ours that i play piano on and and the first track that i don't play guitar on in 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 all our four albums and and i believe uh, it's track seven on the album Mm -hmm. uh but i believe that i did some harmony vocals Mm -hmm. uh going through my list i should have made a list sooner um but the magic of editing will make this be all suave and cool uh i think cello and harmony vocals. It's very sparse. Yeah. And we had a little cello section, maybe yeah. two to four cellos, depending on the moment. But it's a beautiful song. It doesn't need a lot. A good right. song with good bones equals simple communication in many ways. And so this does just that. And it takes you into this story. And whether you know all the little details and nuggets of references or not, it still hits you 
deeply and uh you know you might want to get a kleenex out so you can uh if, if you shed a tear you you, you know yeah. over schaefer beer <laughs> you know there you go there you go it's you know i wrote this uh song based off of an essay written by um, mr rory costello of the society for american baseball research and i thought it was just a really fascinating essay because i thought that once Ebbets Field in Brooklyn um, hosted its last Dodgers game, that they, uh, you know, raised the uh, the ballpark pretty much a month or two later. But it turns out it was sitting there for about two and a half years, and they squeezed a lot of uh, activities into that time. That the park was used for other purposes. That that this uh, cathedral to baseball had a bit of an afterlife. And it was filled with soccer and um, football and uh, amateur baseball. And there was even a, an auto thrill show. Um, and so I just took all of these things and kind of turned it into this, this, this song about uh, an elegy for, for Ebbets Field. Um, kind of a straightforward look at um, what you do with the ballpark after, after your team leaves. And before the lease is up. Yeah, and it really works. I mean, it you know made me want to learn more. And we uh, we interviewed Rory. We in, we did. And he and Aaron had a conversation that went deep. And so I know that any baseball fan is going to really really enjoy this. And on top of that, anyone who's not a fan is going to really enjoy this too because we try to connect it to the greater audience but like you both have such a deep knowledge of who played what when how what era all that stuff it 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 amazed me because it 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 reminded me of when i go deep into music conversation so um were there any spots in the song that you wanted to make note of well you know i think that the 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 spot that you dropped your, your, your cellos in and kind of lifted it uh, was a very, you know, that was the thing that I couldn't do playing the song by myself. And that's the touch that you bring to, uh, to pretty much anything. It's like, you know, you're not a baseball fan. If I asked you to, to, to list five baseball players, you, you probably... Uh, Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds, that's right. Barry. I saw him play once at, at Candlestick Park. Oh, wow. Well, See, I didn't know that. You've been to a baseball game. Yeah, yeah. Candlestick Park, when it was still Candlestick Park. Wow. See, I I didn't know that. That's amazing. And and I went to probably a uh, Tucson Toros game, Mm. which is where the Colorado Rockies did their spring training for a lot of years in Tucson, Arizona. Dang. Well, see, see, you learn something new every day. But in any event, <laughs> you, you're able to, to, to latch into the emotion behind, behind a song. I think you, you fundamentally understood uh, the idea of a city losing its sports team is, is like taking a little piece of its, its heart away. Yeah. Uh, and that's how it was in, in Brooklyn. And you lifted this song um, with your very tasteful use of cello. You, it could have become maudlin, but... I I think you you handled it just right. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So let's hear that little spot. (laughs) ¶¶ 
back. We we heard that spot, and it's, uh, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, well, thank you, Aaron, for pointing that out. Uh, you heard a dog, and uh, we're going to keep that in there because podcasts are the result of the environment, and it's that's a right. good thing. So we're we're kind of on pre remote, uh, pre recording in Boston, right before we go on the whale watch which if you've been listening you've already heard you've already what heard. happened we don't know what happened you're yet. ahead of us right yeah now. so um we're time traveling and you're time traveling with us and it's confusing um but uh without further ado we should probably introduce our guest yes thank you rory costello for taking a moment to uh, to speak with us here is that interview All right. Well, we're uh, we're here with uh, Rory Costello of uh, Brooklyn, New York. Hello, Rory. Hi there. So, Rory is a. Uh, uh, in addition to what, this is a is, is this a volunteer job that you do with Saber, or is this is this a, a real real uh, paid gig? It is. Saber's a nonprofit, and it's just a hobby for me. My day job is in the financial industry. Okay, and, and for those of us who who don't know what Saber is. It's not a sword, right? It's the Society for American Baseball Research. SABR.org is the website. And so that when people talk about saber metrics in, in baseball, they're referring to saber, right? They are. What what does saber metrics mean? Well, it means analytical study. You hear a lot of it these days about different sports teams using analytics, and it's just taking a look at what the numbers mean and deriving strategies from them and uh, studying more closely what the numbers actually represent in terms of a player's performance. But the, the, the stuff that you study tends to be more backward-looking and historical, right? Well, yeah, because Sabre isn't just about analytics and the statistics. There's a whole lot more. There are people who love ballparks. There are people who love history. There are people who love the, you know, there are just a whole number of different committees that are represented in Sabre, you know, each devoted to different interests. And which committee are you involved with? Well, I'm actually the co-chairman of the Bioproject Committee, which is an endeavor to write short biographies of every man who's ever played in Major League Baseball, along with other significant figures. Yeah, I've seen that you, you've done a really long list of, uh, of bios of, uh, of baseball players. And I've only heard, and, and certainly I followed baseball somewhat closely over the years, and I hadn't heard of, of, of all these people. I think what, uh, Hubie Brooks was one of them. I didn't actually do Hubie Brooks, but uh, he was sorry. one of the guys I liked. Well, I remember him because mainly he was one of the guys who went into the trade for Gary Carter that helped the Mets become champions again. All right. Well, I'll have to take a, a closer look at, at, at that list. Um, but I, I didn't see a lot of superstars. No. Well, you know, I've always felt that the stories of the foot soldiers are more interesting in many ways than the stories of the stars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Baseball tends to have... Uh, a lot of um, you, you hear the same notes played over and over again. You know, you, you see the you know, Kirk Gibson's home run or Babe Ruth pointing to the outfield and you go to the, the Hall of Fame and it's kind of boiled down to a couple hundred people. But 
you seem to, to 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 see the game for what it is, which is yeah, a team endeavor and and a uh, something that 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 goes far beyond just just a handful of guys that'll see their name in in uh, on a plaque in Cooperstown someday. Well, I like stories that are off the beaten path. When I first got involved, when the Bio Project came into being in the early two thousands, I'd actually done some work a few years previously when I'd rejoined Saber after a couple years away. I thought to myself, what's a story that has not been covered before? And I remembered when I was a kid collecting baseball cards in the 70s that there were guys from the U.S. Virgin Islands who'd made it to the majors. And so I got involved with that, just writing up a short history and a list of biographies of all the guys who made it from the Virgin Islands to the majors. Is, is it anybody we might have heard of? Well, if you're a Yankees fan, one of the guys who played with the team in the 60s and 70s when they were down on their luck, when they, before they became champions again, you know, Horace Clark, they refer to him uh, as Horace Clark The Horace Clark, Clark era. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And so he came from Frederickstead. I started watching baseball uh, in 1981, and the Yankees were some of the first teams um, was the first team that I saw home games of. So just after the strike, when the, their fortunes fell again, uh, I, I thought that was the uh, the low point of the franchise. But I guess it turns out they've had plenty of errors when, when things didn't go quite as well. But I, I digress. As a Mets fan, I tend to believe that Yankee fans haven't suffered enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so as a Red Sox fan, uh, I, I, I always think the Yankees could suffer more. But uh, that... Um, uh, Anyway. Okay, we can break this up. No, just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Michael, of course, is is a uh, is not an, an anything fan other in, in sports. No, I, you know, it's uh, as a, maybe I'm a sports observer, I guess. Uh, there, there's not much that, that keeps me to it, but I mean, the history is so deep, right? With all the teams and, and um, the loyalty and the ballparks. And I do remember... Uh, as a kid, uh, I did get to see Barry Bonds play at Candlestick Park before I think they rebuilt it or renamed it. It was before I think it turned it Insight.com Park or something like that. Well, they gave them a new stadium. They uh, they moved away from the stick. Yeah, and it was it was thrilling. It was I mean, as a kid, um, you couldn't ask for a better time. Uh, you know, and and I did follow it fairly well, but it was uh, you know again, I wasn't trying to follow statistics or collect baseball cards, even though I had a few. And we did have a neighbor who was a baseball player uh, by the last name Kellner in Tucson uh, in the 50s or something like that. And it, or, uh, he was uh, the, the Kellner family in Tucson. Uh, and that was one of their claims to, you know, there's baseball cards with his picture on it somewhere. So I remember I'd always keep an eye out occasionally for our neighbor's baseball card. So it's, it's again, that... It has nothing to do with much of anything, but I just wanted to say that I I, I do pay attention. Just point one percent. It's it's time to pay the bills with imaginary ads. <laughs> and this is just a note that if you uh, would like to be our sponsor, please uh, please get in touch. We'd, we'd love uh, the support. Uh, but for the time being, we're going to uh, promote brands that we really love. And you know, Michael, I don't always drink beer, but, but when I do, I drink Schaefer beer. 
You, you haven't had beer in a long, long, long time, have you? You know, Schaefer is is. Um, they had it at the Brooklyn Dodgers uh, Park. It, it was up on 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 the wall, and uh, if if you were in the stands enjoying a Schaefer beer, it it it. it, it you were having the, the the true Ebbetsfield experience, and I would highly encourage anybody out there, if you have the opportunity, to enjoy a, a, a crisp, cold Schaefer beer. Uh, go for it; it'll make you f- uh, feel as if you were there in the park. Yeah, and, and uh, please write back, email us at I enjoyed my Schaefer beer at gmail dot com. Actually, don't do that. It doesn't exist. Um, just email us if you want to tell us what you thought of your beverage. Now, I have to say that if you are enjoying a Schaefer beer, chances are uh, you got it through. Uh, there's only one distributor of Schaefer beer right now, and that's uh, eBay. That's right. So it's going to taste a little bit like an old MRE, probably. <laughs> From like, what year? 1960s, 70s? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it may still be okay for you. You might have to go to the hospital. And, and this is the part where we, uh, our, our lawyers have forced us to say that um, you, you have to hold us harmless for this if you're going to try this experiment because we can't be responsible for what happens if you drink a Schaefer beer. Um, because it has been how many years since they've uh, offered Schaefer beer? Uh, it's been a long time. And uh, our lawyer is Basil and Basil Company. Mm-hmm. And... Um, currently uh located at the window and uh yeah we're, we're trying to uh heed our lawyer's advice so enjoy enjoy drink up make sure it's a cold one uh it's it's aged a little more so it tastes a little uh more distinct yeah and when you f- cool things down some of the funkiness gets a little bit covered up by the cold temperature um so there you go uh go dodgers yeah and back to rory So I came upon uh, your essay about the the, the Dodgers, and I don't remember exactly what led me to it, but your piece, uh, Twilight at Ebbets Field, is really fascinating, and it's it's a long, detailed look at uh, kind of disproving this theory that, you know, the last pitch was thrown at Ebbets Field and the wrecking ball, you know, flew later that night. Um, that that uh, it actually had a pretty interesting afterlife. H- how did you come across this story? Well, I'd run across a couple of these teasing references to events that had taken place after the Dodgers moved away. I saw in a book there was something about a demolition derby, and I thought, what? And then I saw something else about soccer, and I thought again, what? And so then I thought to myself, this is a great story. This is the, There's got to be something more to this. And then I kept on digging. The original work, I did back in 2005, and then Sabre published in their research journal the first form of the article in 2006. And then over the years, I've kept on finding out more and more, and that's the beauty of online publishing, is that you can just always make quick fixes and additions to stories that are online. So why do you think people care about about the Dodgers, about Ebbets Field? What is, what is the hold that this this ballpark that's been gone for what 60 something years now has continued to have on the public imagination. Well, 
people refer to ballparks often as cathedrals. and Well, the best of them are. And Ebbets Field had, I never went there myself. I was born a couple of years after the wrecking ball swung. So, uh, and I think originally I was always a Mets fan, but after moving to Brooklyn in the early 90s, I got more and more into Brooklyn history and lore. And then I found out more about Ebbets Field. And you can still see even there's in Brooklyn Heights, right near where the uh, team offices stood on Montague Street, there's a TD bank and they have a mural inside the bank of Ebbets Field. So the legacy lives on. But apparently, from what I can understand, it was a small place and it was an intimate place and it had a lot of characters. And it just, even though over the years it got kind of run down, it still had a lot of charm. Mm -hmm. And it was really part of the fabric of Brooklyn society because the NBA was only just starting in the late 40s. The NFL was around, but it didn't get big until the late 50s, early 60s. And so baseball was it. It was the national pastime, and it was really woven into the fabric of society. And what, what was it about the Dodgers? I mean, if you were living in New York in the, uh, during the Casey Stengel era, what was that, the, the, the 50s and 60s? Well, late 40s up until like right around 1960. Okay, um, they won a lot of a lot of World Series, and and the Dodgers just kind of squeezed one out there toward the end. I mean, why? But and yet, you know, you 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 see all these books about the Dodgers from from, from that era, and uh, it's almost as if people seem to gravitate in retrospect toward toward you know the the, the lovable losers. Uh, what is it about the Brooklyn Dodgers? why people s- still seem to, to hold them in such high regard. Well, I think you touched on it, the underdog appeal, and just the idea that, well, there was the old slogan, wait till next year, and then it was always, always, always next year, and then in 1955, next year finally arrived. Yeah, I mean, what kind of impact did that have on their, on their, on their self-image, on the fans' self-image? Well, uh, as, as far as I know, everybody in Brooklyn was just jubilant. There was a huge celebration, and they made it back to the World Series again the next year in 56 and lost to the Yankees. Mm. Well, suffice it to say, uh, during, while this was going on, uh, they were the team's ownership was talking about uh, the need for a new home. And I, I know that, that it kind of goes beyond the scope of your article, but can you just touch briefly on... this you know what caused the dodgers to leave brooklyn well that's an endless debate really but the two primary figures are walter o'malley who was the primary owner of the club and robert moses the new york city power broker and o'malley wanted a new stadium in brooklyn and moses wasn't prepared to give it to him he offered him the site in queens that eventually became shea stadium and where the mets played and right around there also is City Field, the Mets' current home. But at any rate, O'Malley was interested at first, but then he quickly backed away and realized that he had the bigger and better deal in Los Angeles, and that's what he was going to do. And so a lot of people, uh, they're O'Malley supporters who blame it on Moses, and then they're the O'Malley opponents who will always say that it was his fault no matter what. So, okay, the Dodgers uh, pick up and leave in uh, after the end of which season? Was it 58? 57. And they play the, the, the start of the 58 season in uh, L.A. Coliseum while waiting for, for the new stadium to be built out there, right? Is That's right. Olympic, Olympic Stadium. So, Dodger Stadium. 
Yeah. So who who owns Ebbets Field at that at that point? And and did the did the Dodgers own it themselves at one point? Well, they did. I think O'Malley owned it as part of the overall franchise property, and then it was sold to a developer named Marvin Cratter, who leased it back to the team for three years. And so that would meant 58, 59, or actually, if I, I'd have to look at the article again. But at any rate, there were three years on the lease, and the lease ran out at the end of 1959. And so that's why the ballpark finally got demolished in February 1960. It must have given the, put the fans on edge to hear that the, that the park had been sold. Well, yeah, but I think a lot of them just didn't want to accept reality. They were still hoping against hope that the team was somehow going to stick around. Mm-hmm. But by the time 57 came, you know, you could be pretty well assured that the team was going to be gone. So, I don't know, maybe the Dodgers were kind of hedging their bets with this lease you know, in case they had to stick around a couple extra years. But suffice it to say, they they owed money on the place, and so... They had to, to come up with ways to increase revenue. Is that why there were activities there beyond baseball after the Dodgers left? Well, I think it was really just to, yeah, they, they had the property on the books and they figured might as well squeeze some revenue out of it. So, I mean, how long is this period between the time that the Dodgers left and and when the ballpark was, was torn down? Two and a bit years, because the last Dodgers game was September 1957. And then the first activities started up again in April 1958. There was soccer and there was college baseball. Mm-hmm. And then there were a few other things like the circus and the demolition derby in early 58. Uh, were Brooklynites willing to, to, to come back to Ebbets Field um, after the Dodgers left? I mean, was it were these events pretty well attended? Not the Dodgers fans. I think they would really, in college baseball, there wasn't much of an audience for that. It was just real baseball diehards, not necessarily Dodgers fans. But I think the soccer games were the things that were best attended. And that's because it was a different fan base. It wasn't a baseball fan base. Brooklyn had a lot of Italian folks, a lot of Polish folks, and just people who were soccer fans, first and foremost. Probably not only a generation removed from Europe would be my guess. And the attendance wasn't bad. At its best, it was 20-some thousand. And considering Ebbets Field uh, seated around 32,000 or so, that was a pretty decent crowd. That was a that was pretty small um, attendance for a, a major league ballpark, right? A small capacity? A small capacity, rather, yeah. Yeah, it was. And that was one of the reasons why O'Malley wanted to move. Because, because even though it wasn't, uh, it was a small capacity. It wasn't even getting filled up that much toward the end in the '56 uh, and '57 season. Mm, j- just after they won, I mean, do you think it was because they were threatening to leave and people were starting to detach? And that was part of it, but people were also moving out of Brooklyn and east to Long Island, mm. just going where there was more property, and uh, also just because maybe they didn't like living in the city anymore. You know, things were, demographics were changing. Yeah. So th- there was a demolition derby on the field at, at, at Ebbets Field? Yeah, and uh, apparently it tore the heck out of the turf, too. Yeah. I mean... So maybe maybe this is the time to start talking about uh, a fellow named uh, Babe Hamburger and and the care he took with the upkeep of that place and how it, it must have torn him up inside to, uh, to 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 see the field getting all 
damaged like that. Who 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 was Babe Hamburger? He was started off as a bat boy with the Dodgers in 1921 when he was just a kid, and it was the only job he ever knew. He stayed with the franchise doing all sorts of things. He was a PA announcer. He was a batting practice pitcher. He was a bartender. He was just the, the major domo of the Ebbets Field, and so when the team moved west. He didn't want to move west. Brooklyn was where his life was, and his heart and his identity really were wrapped up in Ebbets Field. And he was made the superintendent of the park during those twilight years from late 57 through early 1960. So it was a real skeleton crew that was keeping this place up during those years, right? Yeah, it was him and a handful of guys and this uh, mixed-breed watchdog. (laughs) Um. There was this, uh, I guess it was the New York Times, a story that that, uh, that you linked to through, through one of your pieces, uh, which I had found before, before you and I uh, connected, that talked about the Los Angeles Dodgers winning the World Series um, and what it was like to be at Ebbets Field while that was happening. Um, oh, that sounds like the Gay Talisi piece. Uh, right. Was, was that the Times? Yeah, it was. He was uh, yeah. writing for the Times then before he became a big name author. Yeah, maybe maybe you can speak to to, to how it must have felt. To and you know, I touch I touch on this in the song a little bit um, about what happens when you know someone or something that you love kind of achieves success after you've cut ties with them. Um, it must have been such a bittersweet feeling for the fan base in Brooklyn to. Uh, to, to watch their, their Dodgers win. Well, I think because the rough mix you sent me of the song, uh, where, where I thought it matched up with the Talisi piece really well was the ghostly feel. And I remember they quoted Babe Hamburger saying, boy, if the, the Dodgers were still here, there'd be Bedlam right about now. But instead, it was just the skeleton crew and the, the empty stores, the, the businesses that used to serve the fans around the ballpark. Mm-hmm. I, I'm really struck, and I don't know, Michael, have, if, if you've spent much time in Brooklyn, um, yeah, I mentioned before we started recording that, 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 that my wife and I got married in Brooklyn, and I've always wanted to see the area around where the old ballpark was, but you, know, you look at it on Google Maps or whatever it is, and there's, it just seems to be almost nothing there other than a sign on the apartment building that replaced it. To, to indicate that anything of significance ever happened there. Um, it, it seems like after the Dodgers left, kind of their, their soul sort of went with them. Well, it, yeah, it's an unremarkable area of Brooklyn, and it's an unremarkable set of projects. And the, you have to hunt pretty hard to find the sign. But even though it's it's not too far east of Prospect Park, which is still one of the areas that draws a lot of Brooklynites just from all different directions, just because it's a pretty place and it's a nice place to hang out. And like you were saying, the Botanical Garden is nearby. The Botanical Garden, if you were to walk from there to the site of Edits Field, it's probably only about fifteen minutes. Have you ever walked around? The, the, have you ever walked around the block there and looked for for indications that anything significant ever happened there? Yeah, I did. And it just, I think the, the mural that I was mentioning before about the TD Bank and Montague Street is a darn sight nicer than whatever is at the actual site of the ballpark. So, so you had mentioned that before we started recording. Can you back up a little bit? And that this was, Montague Street was where the offices were, right? Right. Because that's in Brooklyn Heights. It's near Borough Hall. You know, the end of Montague Street 
is just uh, a short distance away from Borough Hall, which is where the local government is. And Montague Street also contained the Brooklyn Dodgers team offices. And on that spot stands a TD bank. And inside the bank is a really nice mural of Ebbets Field with the players and all the signage and everything else like that. Mm-hmm. And of course, th- those offices w- were where uh, Jackie Robinson got uh, signed, right? That's right. Yeah. And, you know, we, we did a song called uh, The Strengths to Not Fight Back uh, about uh, Jackie Robinson uh, a couple of years ago. And so it starts with that scene, which which happened, I guess, on that on that spot when J- Jackie Robinson walks in to the uh, to the offices and he doesn't know exactly what what's about to transpire. And uh, and history is made. Oh, I'll have to give that one a listen. Yeah, but it's. Uh, I, I wish I wish that the Dodgers had left a, a few more breadcrumbs. It just it seems like they've had such an afterlife in the public imagination. Who, who were some of the characters uh, on the Brooklyn Dodgers that that people remember the best? Well, certainly there was Gil Hodges who went on to become manager of the Amazing Mets in 1969. And that's how I really just first heard of the Brooklyn Dodgers because I was a kid and the Mets were my team. And Gil Hodges was the manager. And then, unfortunately, he died way too young of a heart attack in 1972. But you read about him. And then for many Mets fans, it was their introduction to the Dodgers, the former National League team that were there. Trying to... I I tried to sneak a lot of, of Dodgers names into the song, but I, I just was not successful. Um, um, but if I could, I would have gotten the name Duke Snyder in there. And um, well, I think there are precious few of those guys who are still alive. I think the only survivor of that team who was a big name was Carl Erskine, who's something like ninety six years old now. Right, and of course he wasn't a big name at the time, but 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 Koufax was was on that team, right? Well, he definitely played in 56, mm-hmm. and he played in 57. I, I'm not, I think he might have pitched in a handful of games in 55, but he probably wasn't eligible for the postseason. Right. Although my memory could be playing tricks on me. Um, so Ebbets Field, back in, back in that day, didn't necessarily – they had other activities there uh, too, right? There was a, a f- football games? There were football games. There, there was some boxing from time to time. Although I'm not sure how much of that was still going on in the 50s. But definitely in its past, it hosted some NFL games and some boxing, among other things. Well, I'll tell you one of the other fun stories about uh, the original version of the piece that got published in 2006. When I was doing the research and all the digging about the activities, I saw that there was St. John's College Baseball. And then being a Mets fan, I recognized the name that was in the headline in the New York Times. It said Schreiber's two-run blast leads St. John's to victory, or something of that nature. And I realized that it was a guy who played in briefly for the New York Mets in 1963. And so then I said to myself, oh man, I got to get a hold of Ted Schreiber to hear his memories of what it was like to hit a home run in Ebbets Field while he was playing college ball. And it was Ted who was, well, he had vivid memories of it. He said he could realize it or think about it like it was yesterday. And then he had the beautiful, vivid description of the home run. Oh, wow. And then also of what it was like to set foot on this beautifully manicured professional field as opposed to the places he played on in the sandlots. Hmm. Huh. Nice. So, I mean, he, he hits this home run, but there's like 
almost nobody in the in, in the stands, right? Well, he said just a handful of people because it was early in the year. It was April, and it was probably kind of chilly. And college baseball wasn't much of a draw, especially with the Dodgers' loss being so fresh in the minds of people in Brooklyn. So that's what he told me was that there were only a handful of people there, real diehards who were uh, loved the sport and just wanted to turn out to watch some ball anyway. So he said he could hear the ball rattling the seats. <laughs> You know, as a musician, um, a lot of times we say uh, that my dad always said this when I was on the road with my dad, that the the right people are in the audience, even if you have two or three people. Or I've had a show once where I had zero people that you can't say that about zero people in the audience. But um, as a with your interviews with various baseball players or just anyone. playing on teams for fans uh when you have less people but diehard fans uh does that still warm your heart or is there kind of like this hole that's different than a musician's experience of like okay we may have had 10 people but you were a great crowd you know like they cheer a lot you know like if if you get an audience that it could be small but very mighty and warm your heart nonetheless is it the same thing in in the sports world this is for anyone who doesn't follow baseball but who is interested in this conversation nonetheless and and that that includes me so i'm i'm curious your thoughts on that well i think probably a lot of it has to do with the venue too if it's a really small club and you have just a, a handful of diehards then the energy level is right for that uh, club but if you have a big stadium, even a, a relatively small major league stadium like Abbott's Field, and you have just a handful of people in a 32,000-seat park, then it's going to feel kind of dead. Okay, yeah. Mm. Well, and that, that kind of that lines up a little bit with our experiences uh, as folk musicians. It's, uh, it can be hit or miss. You never know. <laughs> and from town to town. Uh, and who knows your music and who doesn't. I remember seeing a game, uh, the only time I've ever been to McCoy Stadium in, in Pawtucket was in 2017, and, and I think they were already talking about leaving town for, for what was eventually Worcester at that point. But I remember seeing these real diehards sitting in the stands and just, it was pretty empty. Um, and uh, the the visitors scored like, eight runs in the first inning and everybody was really just so down. And then they, they came back to win nine to eight and it was the most electric feeling and everybody was on their feet. And uh, it was one of the most amazing games I'd ever seen. And Raphael Devers was, uh, was one of the players. Um, But yeah, it it was amazing how, how much energy you could get from a small crowd in under the right circumstances. Well, you know, it's still something you can see. I remember riding the subway. It was about a year or two ago with my son, and I saw an older guy wearing a Brooklyn Dodgers cap. And so I just said, excuse me, sir, did you by any chance ever get to see a game at Evans Field? And he said, yes, I did. But if you think about it, it's oh, been wow. 65 years since Major League Ball was played at Ebbets Field, since the Dodgers left. And so the, let's just say that a kid of six, seven, eight years old went to that game. They're still in their early 70s. Yeah, there's still a lot of memories out there. of, of I, I wish I had seen a game there. Um, what? It, it, um, go ahead. 
Of of the gentleman that you mentioned that's around 95 years old, have you had a chance to speak to that person? Carl Erskine. I personally have not, but uh, Carl Erskine has a reputation for just being a super nice gentleman. And I remember actually there was one time when I was a kid, I sent him a baseball card and I didn't observe the protocol to include a stent self-addressed envelope. And nonetheless, I got it back signed from Carl Erskine uh, just because he was that kind of guy. Oh, boy. That's great. Um, who else did you speak to for your article? Well, let's see. Uh, well, I remember actually there was something else. One of the tangents that I remember hearing about when I was doing the work on the Virgin Islands, there was a guy who was just, he was a semi-pro player from St. Croix. And he told me about how he played ball in Ebbets Field with a team when he was living and working in uh, the States in Brooklyn. And so I thought, wow, and there was something else. In addition to having read about the demolition derby and the soccer, here was more evidence that uh, baseball had been played there. And this was the Negro Leagues angle. And so then I looked into it and I saw, I, I wrote a letter to Joe Black, who was another one of the Dodgers stars of the early fifties. And I said, Hey, I heard that Roy Campanella had organized a Negro Leagues team in the late fifties. And he just, he wrote back a brief uh, sentence or two at the bottom of my letter and basically saying, I don't believe it never happened. And then I looked up, I did some digging in the New York times and the fellow I had met in the Virgin Islands was right. There were uh, four Negro League games that took place in July and August, 1959, including the great Satchel page and one of them. So before we talk about Satchel page, for those of, of our listeners who don't know who Roy Campanella was, can you g- give us a brief primer? Sure. He was the Dodgers star catcher from the late 40s through 1957 when he suffered an automobile accident and it made him a paraplegic. But he was still, as I was surprised to discover, even though he was not long out of the hospital and in delicate health, he was a busy man when he was organizing the Negro Leagues and among other things, he was he'd made appearances at the ballpark and he even acted in the, as himself, I believe, in an episode of the TV show Lassie. Michael, you've heard of Lassie, I'm sure. Oh, I have. I have, yes. Yes. Reruns. Reruns. He, he played third base for the, uh, <laughs> for the Rangers back in the uh, 80s. No, um, so, it's just, just bad humor. We, we tell each yeah. other ter- terrible jokes. Um, there's this iconic picture of Roy Campanella in his wheelchair on the field at Ebbets Field, I think you can see the the wrecking ball, but they hadn't it hadn't quite swung yet. Um, do, do you know that picture, Rory? Oh yes, that's it's part of a series. And in fact, the guy I was mentioning when uh, Michael was asking about him, Carl Erskine, was one of the Dodgers who was on hand uh, for the demolition, and he posed next to the wrecking ball, which was painted like a baseball. It had stitches on it. Uh, yeah. Um, so Satchel Page, I mean, legendary figure. Uh, can, can can you talk a little bit about uh, who Satchel Page was and and what brought him to Ebbets Field that afternoon? I'm assuming it was an afternoon. It was. It was. Uh, well, he was a terrific pitcher in the Negro Leagues, probably from the late 30s through the 40s and 50s. And he even had, when he was up there in years, in his early 40s, he appeared for a few years in the majors with the Indians and the St. Louis Browns. But this was, even though he actually did come back and make one more appearance in the majors when he was in his 60s, in uh, the mid-1960s, maybe it was 1965. But when he appeared at Ebbets Field in 59, 
He was probably in his early to mid fifties. And I'm sure that the reason he appeared was just because there was money in it. Although from what I understand, the crowd for those games was probably around four or 5,000. Which is still a respectable number. I, if I got that number of people at a Nathan's Ronstadt show, I'd be ecstatic. But, uh, uh, in any event, this was some of the last baseball and probably the last professional baseball played at Ebbets Field. It was. There was some high school ball and there was some youth ball played after that. But then the last events of any kind that were played at Ebbets Field, any sport, were some soccer matches in the fall with the American Soccer League. Can you think of anybody who's who, who's made a name for themselves uh later in life who 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 played at Ebbets Field uh you know other than the names we've already discussed dur- who played at Ebbets Field during that period well let's see um there were some uh, a number of guys who made it to the majors but no ma- no major stars mm-hmm. sorry to say i i have to wonder whether the, the people who played during that period at, at this uh, i guess cavernous feeling even though it wasn't you know relatively big compared to other major league parks um, whether they enjoyed the experience, um, whether they were able to kind of imagine what it was like to be a Dodger, um, or, or whether it just felt empty and, and hollow. And, and this is, a an old place who cares about this old joint. It's on its way out. The impression I got from everything I read and the people I talked to is that you know, they regarded it as a real treat, even though the Dodgers were gone, even though the place felt kind of hollowed out. And one of the stories I heard, I got an email from a guy who played youth ball there in 1959. He was probably around 13 years old. And one of the images he remembers was that the bullpen phone was just wires in, in the dugout. You know, the handset wasn't there anymore. It was just wires sticking out of the wall. Uh-huh. But nonetheless, he said what Ted Schreiber said, too, that the field was beautifully maintained and it was a treat to play on. Mm-hmm. And, and that's due to, to the... Babe Hamburger must have taken a lot of uh, pride in in keeping Ebbets Field, you know, as, as good as it could look. Yeah, he and his guys sure did. Well, you remember we were hoping to have his daughter on, but she left it in our hands because she's not she doesn't own a computer, she doesn't uh, run on email, but she's she's a joy to talk to, and she was telling me more about her dad and about how he was a Brooklyn guy through and through. But then the other interesting thing I found that she told me was that even though uh, he worked for Walter O'Malley and could have felt like, uh, as many Brooklynites did, that Walter O'Malley was the devil, he never demonized Walter O'Malley. He never had any malice toward him. I imagine all the ads, the iconic ads the uh, for Schaefer beer and you know, a- Abe Stark hit the ball, hit, hit the it's sign with a suit. Yeah, th- th- these were still still up at the time. Right? They were. The scoreboard? From the pictures I've seen, yeah. Do you know if the scoreboard was operating? Uh, for the baseball games, I expect it was. I'm not sure if they had. Yeah, that's a good question. Because it would probably have still been a manual scoreboard as opposed to an electric scoreboard. And I wonder if they did hire somebody to put up the score and put up the numbers. Uh, that never occurred to me. Right. And do you know if the public address uh, system was, was, was running at that point? Um... Possibly, but that's another aspect I never thought to cover. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, and Michael just showed us a picture of uh, of Roy Campanella on the field. That was that iconic photo. Yeah, I, I noticed there is a Schaefer's beer mm. um, ad in the right to the left of Lucky's Taste Better. So 
and to the right of brass rail restaurants. So it's, a, yeah, it's a, but now I want to go try a Schaefer beer after knowing, you know, after you've been singing the song, we've been performing it and I'm like, I need to try a Schaefer beer. But I, I was curious, has anyone revived that beer in Brooklyn in um, over the Rhine, Cincinnati? There was some, there was a, an older beer company that got, you know, they, they brought back one of the old uh, flavors about 10, 12 years ago. And it, it, it really, you know, they, they found the recipe or something like that and started making it again. So was it Hudipole uh, or Shainling? Uh, it's, uh, I don't know if it's Hudipole. Oh, it's been a while. Cause I played for one of their grand openings. Uh, uh, but it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of different old beers that have been brought back in Cincinnati, and I'm just trying to remember which one that one was specifically. Um, I tasted Schaefer. It's not worth reviving. It's not worth reviving. Okay. <laughs> well, I remember it was on the market. I remember they had some funny edge campaigns in the late 70s and early 80s, and it was a Met sponsor for a number of years, too. So I remember it well. But it was just it was basically a boring and mediocre mass market beer. Okay. Yeah. Uh, As many of them can be when, when you're selling them probably at a game because, uh, there's a cost, <laughs> uh, a high cost for a more affordable, less spectacular beverage, uh, you yield some better profits. I'm sure. Well, it was before the whole craft brewery thing came in too. That's true. That's true. Yeah. But I, you know, I do love the, the dedication to any team, you know, you show up, uh, all weather, whether the field is uh, in a hundred percent working order or if parts of it are falling apart, um, it's it's a beautiful story and it's a beautiful thing that we humans can do to support something uh, that other humans are doing. Uh, well, I'll tell you something else. There's uh, Saber has a book project in the works about notable games at Ebbets Field. And I've had the pleasure of writing about the first game that was played there in 1913 and also the last game that was played there in 1957, the, the last Dodgers mm. game. They're, they're just they're tight game stories of 1500 words or so. That, that's the format. And apparently the organist, her name was Gladys Gooding, who she'd gotten in her cups during that last game. And the more the music she played, it was just really somber and melancholy and just nobody wanted to hear it. They were just, she was putting a damper on the whole crowd, what there was of it. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> Goodness. Well, Michael was talking a moment ago about the people who, uh, you know, these, these diehards. And I, I think really what spoke to me so much about your piece was that you were writing about the, the most devoted of the diehards, the people that showed up uh, after the team was gone, after the fight was lost, um, you know, that they were so devoted to the Dodgers that they were willing to make sure that, 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 the, uh, that Abbott's Field, that their home had some dignity as it was uh, being ushered out of existence. Well, the phrase I use, if I recall correctly, was the most loyal foot soldiers were still at their posts. It's it's a fantastic piece, and I'd recommend that. Uh, where can where can people? I mean, we'll put it in the show notes. But uh, if anybody's hearing this, work if they go to is it what's the name of it? is it sabr.org? That's right. And then they can just 
put in the search function uh, Twilight at Ebbets Field. That's right, because uh, there's a box, there, a search box called uh, Search the Research Collection. And Twilight, if you put in Twilight Ebbets Field, that ought to bring it up. Uh, before we go, anything uh, anything that you'd like to plug, anything you're working on now that uh, you'd like to mention? No, I'll, I'll just say, uh, look at sabr.org. That's the Sabre website. And you can always, uh, it's, membership isn't free, but it's uh, it's if you're devoted to baseball if you're a baseball fan there's plenty of uh, information to be found and plenty of ways that you can contribute all right rory costello uh, of the bio project at the society for american baseball research thank you rory much appreciated for taking so much time to, to talk to us about your uh, your fascinating piece my pleasure it's been fun guys thanks Okay, well, that was a fun interview. Uh, we're laughing because oh. we just did the ad where we're paying bills. Um, uh, do uh, come to us with any actual products if you would like to support this podcast. We are, uh, we would be in your debt. Actually, we'd be. We're thankful. already in debt. Yeah. So, so uh, but Rory, thank you for this wonderful interview. Thank you, Rory. And uh, you were a champ to. Uh, talk about baseball while a wayward washed up 39 year old cello player listened and tried to ask a question or two that may be related so thank yeah. you goodness well you're a good sport michael and uh, rory you're a good sport too for letting us uh write a song about your your piece we are going to play the song for you so here is Flatbush Sunset, featuring Aaron Nathans on piano, Michael Ronstadt on cello, Aaron Nathans on lead vocal, and Michael Ronstadt on harmony vocals. Here we go. In this diamond-shaped tomb, there's a maintenance room. Where we watch our old friends on TV There they dance on the mound But out here there's no sound Just a ballpark with old vacant seats The club moved out west Now there's four of us left in the morning we'll chalk out the lines And we'll keep the lawn mowed Like the boys are out on the road And we'll welcome them home anytime Where the Duke once hit bombs There's the team from St. John's At the park they spent weekends as boys they walk the outfield at night and they stare up at the lights But they have to imagine the noise Any odd high school squad They can rent this old yard But just for a limited time 
boys won the big game While we tend the low flame There'll be no suit if you hit the sign is almost up no Schaefer beer in my cup but the Kansas City Monarchs are in town it's Jackie's old team from the great Negro Leagues satchels come to close the place down and when the last pitch is thrown and the teams have gone home I'll tie up the front gates with twine Could have gone to L.A. But I decided to stay Tell my boys I'll be home before nine They won the big game But there'll be no parade hometown of mine wonderful that was awesome that is aaron i'm glad you debuted your piano skills how did it sound I liked it. You always get me out of my comfort zone and, and make me uh, do things that uh, I'm not good at. Just like the whale watch. Yeah. You did it. Don't, you survived. Don't get me started. Um, just Presum- like. Presumably. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't done it yet, but we're assuming we survive. Um, knock on. There you go. Um, yeah. What's the word of the day? I'm, I'm going to start. Go ahead. Coffee. I have two kinds in front of me. I have old Dunkin' Donuts coffee with almond milk, and then I have black coffee from where? Third Third Cliff Bakery? Third Cliff Bakery. It's a good combo because I'm going back and forth, and I will stay awake today. Uh, drove a lot from Cincinnati to here uh, mm-hmm. yesterday and the night before. Um, that's my word of the day. Coffee is keeping me going. All right. Well, my word of the day is outfielder. Which is a position in hockey where they hold the stick upside down. Exactly. Okay, there we go. (laughs) You've been listening to the (laughs) Nathan's and Roncast. Supported by Michael Roncat. Peace. Thank you.
puts itself to rest. A soft wind bends the slender blades of the dune grasses in the west. A pale cloud to pink and fade. 